Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, council ruled to reprimand Hamilton's LGBTQ chair, Cameron Croshaw, after the Integrity Commissioner's report. So does this redefine the role of the Integrity Commissioner? Ontario could see thousands of new cases of COVID-19 a day by mid-October, but the government says that going back to phase two is not imminent. And should the governments be doing more for business owners? Should rent subsidies be available right through to businesses? We're going to talk about all this on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts right now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. City Council, as we mentioned uh, yesterday, uh, has dealt with the... uh, concerns about Cameron Kresh, uh, who is the chair, of course, of the LGBTQ committee and uh, the Integrity Commissioner report, uh, which offered a number of recommendations, including removing him from the chair's position. I want to get a couple of different angles on this as to exactly what happened in council's uh, position and the decision they made on that. Uh, first of all, I want to bring uh, Peter Grafin into the conversation, professor of political science at McGrath University in Hamilton. Uh, thanks so much for the time, Peter. Glad you could join us today. My pleasure. You've been following this. I, I characterized this the other day as, as using a sledgehammer to hit a flea. I mean, is, is, is this a tool the council should be using on a regular basis for something like this? No. No. I mean, uh, ultimately, this no doubt cost several thousand dollars to produce this report, which at the end of the day, uh, you know, council took, and uh, it turned out that they uh, decided to use a lot of civic time and energy uh, to reprimand someone for not listening to the city clerk. Essentially, uh, in terms of the city clerk's uh, interpretation of the, uh, munici- the the freedom of uh, personal information and the Protection Act, the, the FIP Act, um, you know uh, about some information that was already in the public domain, but uh, whether or not you know it would be proper to use that within the city. So that, that was ultimately what uh, City Council used all that time and money to do. Uh, yeah, it did seem a bit too much. I mean, in addition, uh, clearly the Integrity Commissioner had been directed. Uh, to uh, inquire as to the propriety of, uh, of the respondent in this case appearing on your show <laughs> and yep. being openly critical uh, of uh, some of the city's decisions, um, the, the council, despite you know a finding of, <laughs> from the part of the uh, of, of the integrity commissioner that there might have been an issue there in terms of you know duty to uh, to council, uh, decided not to go forward. So why, again, they asked someone to inquire into the, something, which was quite troubling in terms of a capacity to, to silence criticism of counsel, uh, and then decide not to make use of that finding is also uh, a bit surprising to me that they would, again, uh, you know, waste people's time and money with that kind of uh, inquiry, uh, one that I think upset or concerned a lot of people in the city, uh, and then pretend that somehow they weren't ever interested in doing that anyways, and they would never, you know, try and shut down criticism of council. So that, too, was, uh, again, going overreach in terms of what this, uh, what this whole investigation was about. You know, beyond the fact that, I, I, to my knowledge, I haven't uh, seen integrity commissioners ever uh, decide to inquire as to behavior in these advisory committees, Presumably, because in, in most uh, municipalities, they have uh, more productive ways of dealing with situations where uh, advisory committee members uh, are running afoul of the rules set out uh, around their mandates. A couple of things, and I, I, I sense the same inconsistencies that you've seen and, and just uh, mentioned, Peter. Uh, and and I'll, I'll do this on a couple of levels. Let's talk a little bit about his appearances on the show, which, the, which seem to ruffle the feathers of the people in the Integrity Commission. Uh Cameron's been on the show many times over the last number of years uh, about not raising the flag during Pride Week, about the incidents, of course, at Gage Park and subsequent instances. 
Uh, at no time did anybody on council raise any issues about it at that time uh, and complain about it, but this one seemed to rankle them. Any, what was different this time? This is a, 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 a person who's representing that community and representing the interests of, of that committee and of that community, for that matter, too, uh, expressing some concern, and not the only person in this city who's expressed those same concerns, about diversity on the police services board and about uh, a city staffer who had been on staff for quite some time, uh, notwithstanding the fact that he was, uh, uh, you know, associated with neo-Nazi uh, programs and things of this nature. Why this time? Why did they draw a line in the sand here? Well, actually, I don't know the answer to that, Bill. I mean, no, it's a, I guess it's a rhetorical question, Peter. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, I think there's uh, an aspect where. You know, the criticism of these appointments, in a way, over the past few years, uh, the politics has become uh, much sharper. Uh, and I think the council doesn't like being found to, to, to be bound or to be criticized on grounds that they hadn't been historically. I mean, in the past, appointments to the police services board were fairly non-controversial in the city. Uh, you know, the idea that now uh, the, the community is asking, uh, or at least parts of the community are asking, uh, to look at these through a different lens and think about uh, the representativeness of uh, who's being appointed there, you know, I think that rankles. And, I, you know, I think probably for a number of councillors, too, uh, the personalization uh, rankled them a bit, too, the fact that people were being criticized who as either, you know, municipal employees or people appointed to the board. Uh, you know, didn't actually, you know, it's the council themselves who had made that call, and so why were they naming these people? That may have also played a bit uh, in that. But I think more it was, I mean, there's been... Uh, a growing division uh, between uh, that committee and the city over a number of issues. And, and I think, uh, in a way, it went probably too far from the point of view uh, of the city councillors at that moment and pushed them in that direction. Um, and for them to think about, was there a, a way that they could uh, push back uh, on that? But you've touched on something that I think is very germane. I know a couple of councils brought it up during the debate yesterday. Uh, there's that element of it, which I, I still don't think it holds any water. But the, even the thing about the tweet that that he has, uh, that he did send out, uh, he didn't mention any names in that. And, and as you mentioned, the names were available on the city website. So I, it's not as if he was divulging confidential information in a situation like this. Uh, it was critical of the city decision. Uh, but for God's sakes, Peter, how many times have city councillors critical of council decisions and, and people in the community are critical of council decisions? I understand now that they've dragged out a clause in, in you know, the municipal act or whatever it is that they're using here uh, that suggests that they shouldn't really be doing that. Does that suggest that if you're going to sit on a committee here and try to uh, represent a community to city council and offer advice that you have to march in lockstep with everything city council says? Well, uh I mean, I think there's a bit more play in some of those uh, some of those rules in terms of how you know, for instance, uh, you know, one presents oneself on a show, whether one is uh, simply a community advocate or one uh, uses one's title as uh, as a chair of a committee. Um, but you know, nevertheless, I think you know the lesson uh, I think a lot of people will draw from this is that it's probably not worth sitting on advisory committees. Um, and more to the point, uh, communities need to organize outside of those. That if you sit on city advisory committees from the point of view of council, uh, it's a way to gag you in a way. It, it, you know, you can obviously have a role in putting views forward to council, but uh, that's where it stops. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, for a number of communities which have used these advisory councils as a way to be able uh, to meet and develop ideas of what's happening in the, in the community and to propose solutions, uh, I think they're beginning to think, well, maybe they have to do more outside of outside of council, because while in the past I think council, 
I shouldn't say turned a blind eye. I think, and sometimes they actually looked quite positively on that. I mean, you know, what's the city council doing with these advisory committees? Part of it is they're getting advice, but part of it, of it too is they're enriching our civic conversation by allowing different groups uh, to formulate uh, really interesting proposals for the city and and understand uh, and mobilize their communities to build a stronger community. Uh, but the very narrow uh, reading that comes out of the integrity yeah. commissioner's report is really saying no, it's not. It's just about providing advice to council. And so I think a lot of communities now will be figuring out ways to advocate on the outside, which, again, you know, it probably means more delegations to council on many issues, because rather than feeding, uh, you know, a coherent set of uh, of views through an advisory committee, uh, you're going to end up having, you know, views on every issue coming forward, uh, uh, you know, at council. So in a way, I think council has created more work for itself. It's probably undermined some of the useful community-building activity it did in the past with these advisory committees, but probably is, is encouraging communities to organize now outside of those structures. i got a minute left, but I want you to comment on something else, too, because uh, one of the councillors tweeted yesterday, uh, and I know you responded to the tweet uh, as well, uh, and I'll paraphrase it. It seems to indicate that, well, with this Integrity Commission's report, uh, does do, does their authority extend over other community groups now and things of that nature? And, uh, you know, he referenced one in particular. Uh, I've had more than a few people contact me and say, you know, the inference there seemed to be if you speak out against us, we're coming after you. Yeah, I mean, that was quite clearly uh, the intent. Uh, I mean, at least that's how I read it. <laughs> when you ask, you know, would, uh, would the... Uh, with, with the commissioner uh, and, and the, their mandate reached to a whole lot of other organizations just tangentially related to the city. Which, again, I mean, do we, do we elect city councillors to run the city and take important decisions, or do we elect them to hire expensive consultants to produce reports and then, you know, spend half a day of city time uh, debating on whether someone should have their wrist slapped, you know, in a way which may have some pretty significant professional ramifications for people who work as consultants to have a finding like this in the public domain. So, uh, you know, again, it, it, it is, as a, as a newspaper in town noted, a uh, city council that's beginning to act like a star chamber. Uh, it's maybe going a bit too far <laughs> in the language, but it's an odd idea of the vocation of city council to be out uh, investigating critics and punishing them rather than taking the many important decisions we need them to be taking uh, to run this city and to, to make it a better city in which to live. Peter Grafe, uh, of course, McMaster University. As always, Peter, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you today. Have a good day. You too. Uh, we did talk with Cameron Crush, of course. Uh, this is before the council meeting earlier this week. And uh, as expected, oh, by the way, I should identify Cameron Crush as a concerned citizen, okay, because I don't want to ruffle any of the feathers at city council. You know, let's, let's not deal with titles here. Uh, but anyway, Cameron suggested that, look, if he's, he doesn't think he's done anything wrong. As a chair, it's my job to represent the committee and the committee's decisions in public. And I think it's important to point out that, um, as a member of the queer community, that I think that this is an attempt to silence voices and silence those who are marginalized in our community. Uh, Wade Posiamka is a partner with Rossum Bride. He was representing Cameron in this uh, uh, enterprise uh, over the last couple of days, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to give us his perspective on this. Wade, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate you uh, joining in with us today. Yeah, good morning, Bill. Thank you for having me. Your uh, response and your uh, observations, Wade, on what you saw and heard yesterday. Well, I was disappointed, and I, I want to take the opportunity uh, here on your show to, to set the record straight. So what we heard from the, the Integrity Commissioner yesterday before Council is that, uh, you know, through the course of, of his process, it's resolution-focused, and there was a lot of talk um, about course corrections and things of that nature. Let me just take a second, Bill, to tell you exactly what sure, happened here. Sure, sure. Okay? 
So Cameron gets a letter setting out the allegations made against him, and we understand the complaint came from counsel. Next, he's interviewed by the Integrity Commissioner, and I was present for that, and that went for less than two hours, I believe. After that interview, we sent some material over to the Integrity Commissioner to help inform the investigation. Never contacted him again. The next we received was a draft report uh, from the Integrity Commissioner. So we reviewed that, and we realized that there was a lot of information missing. So we sent in excess of 100 pages of information back to the Integrity Commissioner. We never heard from the Integrity Commissioner again. A final report was submitted, and recommendations were, were made to remove Cameron from counsel. So I, I just really wanted to kind of lay out the facts in terms of what transpired for the investigation because from my perspective it certainly wasn't resolution focused there were no course corrections and i think the reason for that uh was stated yesterday by the integrity commissioner before council when he said essentially and i I may be paraphrasing here but this complaint came from council and we thought it was important to bring it back to council from my perspective that's basically saying the complaint came from council so we're going to engage in differential treatment for cameron but uh, but for certain bill, there was no resolution focus to this investigation. Do you feel you you talked with them, Wade? Uh, you submitted information. Uh, there's a big difference between hearing and listening. Were they listening? I don't think so. I mean, if you look at so we got the draft report, and like I said, we sent uh, over 100 pages of information back. There may be only a few tidbits from what we sent back in the final report. Um, so uh, you know. I would say in the two-hour interview, they, they were listening to Cameron. I mean, there were some probing questions, and there was a good discussion. But, you know, really disappointed in the process, especially when it was laid out for us at the outset um, in that first two-hour uh, interview that we would have that resolution focus that was, you know, much discussed yesterday at Council. And so I, I will say that the, the, the investigation, from my perspective, was disappointing. Um, I feel that both Cameron and I... Uh, were misled by the process and, um, you know, to be blindsided with a report that recommends he be removed from the committee, from my perspective, is inappropriate. i got to get your opinion too, Wade, if I could, about one of the things that I find rather contentious about that, and that was the tweet. Uh, Forget the content of the tweet, although it was characterized by some people that, that he mentioned names and he did not in the tweet. But this is information that the city itself had put up on their webpage uh, and was there available for the public. Is there a double standard at play here? Yeah, I mean, well, you heard Councillor Clark in, in council yesterday talking about liability to the city and, and privacy issues. I mean, it, it's rich to kind of hear that, that type of discussion when the city has the unredacted report with names on their website. Now, my guess, Bill, and I don't know this, is that they probably didn't know it was there. Um, but again, from my perspective, that leads to a, a bigger issue with governance for the city of Hamilton than, than we might have thought existed initially. Um, and I will point out to you that in the information that Cameron submitted to the Integrity Commissioner, uh, it was clear that that document in unredacted form with names published was available from the City of Hamilton's website. So, you know, had they have been looking carefully at what we submitted, uh, everyone would have been aware of this uh, well in advance of, of yesterday, and, and, and perhaps they were, I don't know. Well, and it was in the public domain, for heaven's sakes. Both the, the those issues, the, the staff member uh, with a rather sordid history, shall we say, and the the, the process for police service board appointees uh, were very controversial issues that were widely discussed around this community. Uh, lots of other people tweeted and retweeted information and, and opinions about that as well. It, 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 
I, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering at the subtext here, and I, I, don't, I know you've talked about this with Cameron, uh, is, you know, are they trying to send a message here? And I referenced, uh, you know, some of the reaction to this, that, uh, you know, I, I know Cameron and others have suggested that they're trying to stifle public opinion and, and, and anybody who wants to speak out here. I, I'd like to think that's not what's going on, but that may be uh, the end result here, that people are going to say, look, I, I don't want to be on committees. I'm afraid to get involved in here because these people lash out if I say something they don't like. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, whether that was intended or not, um, I think the effect of, of this report and the process that took place will have a, a chilling effect on others. Who's going to want to sit on an advisory committee in a volunteer position? Um, you know, and they do their advocacy work in the community, which, you know, I, I think should be applauded. We need more of that in the city of Hamilton. And, you know, now your council spending, uh, you know, almost two hours talking about just you and and what you've done, and, and, and basically the only integrity commissioner report that makes it before council, which again surprises me, given everything we've seen recently in terms of council's conduct and the behavior that we see from individual councillors, whether that be on social media or in council itself. Well, and as they mentioned, uh, there were a number of other issues that were before the integrity commissioner anyway that uh, they say were resolved, quote-unquote, uh, but this one seemed to jump to the front of the list all of a sudden. I don't know if there was very much in the way of uh, an effort to try to resolve this one before this, uh, it got to this point. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, when they say it's resolved, we also thought that we would have the opportunity to uh, resolve our matter, or at least have a discussion, and that wasn't afforded. So, you know, I, I, I guess I question why all of these other complaints that were resolved and never made it to council. You know, what was the process that was used in those complaints and how were they resolved? And, you know, we certainly didn't feel we had the mechanism to do that. Wade Pazyanka, of course, partnered with Ross McBride, representing uh, Cameron Crush in this uh, enterprise. Uh, as always, uh, Wade, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the insight today. Thanks for having me, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, as we uh, heard earlier this week, uh, the numbers here in Ontario for COVID-19 are not encouraging. Uh, we are officially, according to the Premier and the Medical Officer of Health, uh, into the second wave of COVID-19. Uh, we knew this was coming. We don't know how serious it's going to be. Uh, well, the virus in itself is serious. But it's interesting as we head into this, and we're not alone in this, obviously. The numbers right across the country are rather troubling, and we're starting to see some spikes in the United States as well. But here in Ontario, we're kind of getting mixed messages from some people of the medical community, some suggesting it's time for a total lockdown like we did back in the spring, others saying not so much. Global TV's Dave Woodard has this report. The province's chief medical officer of health, Dr. David Williams, says you can't just look at daily numbers to determine what's next. We're trying to assess those in regard to the local jurisdictions, what's in their areas, how do we keep the things open we need to keep open. For now, the province will not roll back into stage two, although the premier kept open that possibility, only saying it's not being talked about right now. He says that Dr. Williams understands the implications beyond the health aspect. He's doing everything he can, and he has throughout this whole pandemic, to have a happy balance. Premier Ford says Dr. Williams knows health comes first, but that also people are holding on by their fingernails and need to keep going to work. Dave Woodard, Global News. Well, so where do we go from here, and uh, and what can we do as, as individuals to try to mitigate what may be happening? We certainly don't want a repeat of what happened uh, in the first phase of this. Joining us to uh, talk about this is Dr. Isaac Bogosh. Uh, Dr. Bogosh, of course, is a uh, general internal medicine and infectious disease assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you back on the program today. Yeah, it was great to chat. Was there a sense of inevitability that wave, this uh, second wave was going to happen? Yeah. In short, yeah. I mean, we knew that cases were going to go up uh, in, in the fall and the winter. We certainly did. We've been, many of us were sort of chatting about it actually rather publicly 
since probably mm-hmm. around June or so. And uh, I think the key thing here is cases are going to rise. We know there's a lot of reasons for that. Basically, it's indoor settings, and there's you know many factors driving people indoors. Kids are back at school. People are going back to work. Economy's wide open. It's getting colder outside. A lot of factors driving people back indoors. I think the question here is, how can we ensure that this second wave isn't humongous and how can we keep the numbers under control with an expected rise of a second wave and keep people's health and well-being say uh you know uh, taken care of but also ensure that we don't have something like we did in the first wave where uh you know there was a giant lockdown that had tremendous uh, health economic psychological personal detriments and and therein lies the problem, and I guess the the conflict in some sense of sort of mixed messaging. I'm, I know you're aware of this, but I mean there seem to be uh, two different levels of, of thought here, uh, and uh, both have petitioned the premier in this case. Uh, one from it was the Ontario Hospitals Association, and a number of doctors saying we have to go back to a total shutdown. That's the only way to keep a lid on this. Uh, another series of doctors sent another petition that they've all signed, simply saying no, we don't need to do that. We just have to be more vigilant. Uh, <laughs> uh, is is there a middle ground here somewhere, doctor? Yeah, like like most things, there there usually is, and I think it's also it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I I know many of the people who were penning both letters, and, and you know, I read both of them pretty carefully. It's kind of interesting, actually, when you take a step back. Believe it or not, if you read those letters, and you, you, there's actually more similarities in those letters than differences. Like, there's a lot of agreement in those letters, and I think that. Uh, Uh, Certainly, many are concerned that with not just with the current case count, but with the current trend and rise in cases without policy really focused on flattening that out. The concern is, is this going to spiral under control? Is this going to result in, you know, a number of uh, unnecessary hospitalizations and preventable deaths? Uh, And and of course, I don't think anyone argues that 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 could that could happen. We've seen it happen time and time again. So I mm-hmm. think we, we don't need to make these same mistakes, you know, time and time again. And we can learn from our experience and from the gl- collective global experience on how to prevent that. Um, uh, you know, on the other hand, you know, obviously you can't just carry carry on willy nilly. So uh, you cross a certain threshold of cases in, in a particular area where you just you start to lose options in terms of how to get this under control. And I think these focused and targeted public health initiatives will work when case numbers are low. And I'm not going to pretend to know what that threshold is, but once you cross it, I think it's just your options become fewer and fewer, unfortunately. I think what the senior political leadership and senior public health leadership in Ontario is going to do is they're probably looking very, very closely at Quebec right now and looking at the policies that they've implemented in, in three regions where they, you know, they took a pretty heavy handed approach there. And, and I think they'll look at the current case numbers in, in Ontario and, and the trajectory that those are headed in. And they'll probably, you know, decide whether or not they want to implement some or all of those approaches in Ontario. That would be my guess. In other, and I think the premier hinted at that the other day, hotspots as opposed to a province wide shutdown, at least now. Oh, anyway. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I don't think for a second that they'll do a province wide uh, approach. I think it will certainly be a very regional approach and probably even a stepwise approach if they do it. And again, I'm speculating here, but I think they've been pretty clear that that would be the approach that they're that they're taking. And I think also when we take a step back and listen to what everybody's saying, doesn't matter which camp they're in, everyone's saying, like, we want to avoid shutdowns. We want to avoid this. We, we mm-hmm. get the, what the harms are. I think some people feel that we're farther along in the 
pandemic in Ontario right now that those are warranted where other people are saying, you know what, they might not be warranted just yet. Can we still use focal measures and targeted measures to get these numbers under control? And, and I know the people that are looking at preventative measures, doctor, have, have recommended, uh, well, they say instead of shutdowns, this should be better communication to try to get the message out. I mean, we're, what, nine, ten months into this thing right now, uh, the second wave of it, of course. I don't know that there are too many people out there that don't know what's going on and don't know the precautions that we should be taking and don't know the protocol, uh, the, you know, the hand sanitization and, and the masks and the social distancing. Uh, you know, it's not as if they don't know and it's not as if they haven't been told. There's an awful lot of people out there that just seem to say, well, I don't care. Oh, I think you're, that's the home run of home runs. It's not necessarily communication that's the issue. It's driving behavioral change that's the issue. Yeah. And, uh, you're right. Like, it's October 1st. Like, come on. Everyone knows what a mask is. Everyone knows what physical distancing is. Everyone knows how to wash their hands. And, like, you can't walk around and not see a sign or someone tell you or put a mask in your hand. Like, it's just it's painfully obvious that that's, that's necessary. Like, there's no excuse. But the point, you know, how can that message be parlayed in an effective manner? And I would say in an age-appropriate a language-appropriate, and a culturally-appropriate manner to help drive behavioral change. We have, a, obviously, a big country geographically. We have a very diverse country, uh, and uh, we need to reach everyone in every group, in every cohort. And I don't think there's a there's, – I don't think – I know there's not a one-size-fits-all messaging campaign. And I think we really need to take a much better look at how these messages are being delivered – so that we can drive behavioral change more effectively. And you know what? There's professionals that do this, right? These yeah. are the same professionals that convince us to buy the cars that we buy or eat at the restaurant we eat at, you know, like this, wear the clothes that we wear. Like they're in the business of behavioral change. And I think it would be very helpful to get them on board to help with some of these campaigns. Well, especially in light of the fact that demographically it looks like that, you know, that 18 to 30 bracket is, is where a lot of the increases in the new cases are right now. And uh, I don't want to point the finger and say, ah, it's all their fault. And and I also don't, uh, you know, what happened in Wasaga Beach and what happened in Ancaster here a couple of weeks ago with the car rallies and everything, th- those are the exceptions. I mean, they're, they're idiotic behaviors, but there's the exceptions. I, I think what, what you and others have talked about, it's, it's no, it's the it's the eight or ten gatherings of people that are going out, you know, going out to dinner or going to somebody's house to watch the ball game. That's outside of the bubble, in other words. And, and that's yeah. where a lot of the spread seems to be happening. Yeah, exactly. But as you point out, you know, even if it like, again, I'm not into shaming and blaming. Let's just get this right. And uh, yeah. and we know that there is a large number of people in that, you know, 20 year old ish demographic. So, OK, let's communicate with them on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok, on what on others, you know, find them where they are, not not uh, where, the, where not where they aren't. And uh, I think there's room to improve on that. But I also think that policy can really go into place. Like it's not just the, the message is key, but we can have policy that aligns with this. Let me give you an example. Sure. Um, you know, we're trying to say avoid indoor spaces, avoid large gatherings in indoor spaces. That's essentially it. That's basically it. We're going to get this infection when people get together in indoor settings and they're not wearing masks and they're not practicing physical distancing. That's how people get this infection. We know that at this point in the pandemic. So, you know, while restaurants and bars are open, I think it's still okay to encourage people to be outside more uh, and to avoid large gatherings. So, you know, a simple policy change. I know many people might not want to hear it, but hey, why not allow, maybe temporarily, for alcohol to be consumed in public parks? 
Simple, easy, effective. Go outside, have a beer with your friends. No one's going to get COVID-19 in that setting. And, uh, yeah, I know that it's getting cooler outside, but, you know, here's a remarkable invention. We call it jacket. And, like, you could put <laughs> one on. So, like, just simple policy changes to help enable success that goes along with the best communication to help enable success. I just think there's lots of different things that we can do, creative and simple, low-hanging fruit, to really help lower these uh, rates of transmission in the community. Doctor, always a pleasure to have you on the program, and uh, your insight is uh, much appreciated. Uh, here's hoping that some people take that advice in the next little while. Very busy day for you, as every day has been for the last little while. Thanks for taking some time today. No, lovely to chat. Have a good one. You too. Dr. Isaac Bogash, of course, the University of Toronto in the Department of Medicine. There are some things happening in the way of research, though, that we, that we need to focus on from time to time. Uh, and, and there's some very positive news that's coming out of that. Canada's COVID-19 Immunity Task Force, the uh, CITF, has announced that its support for a new uh, program. Uh, this, it's a study, actually. It's focused on Aging Canadian, with Canadian Longitudinal Study of Aging, another group that are all getting together, and they're going to get funding for this. And we know, obviously, that uh, once you get to a certain age, you tend to be more vulnerable to COVID-19 and other infectious diseases. To give us a, some insight into this, we're pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Perinda Reyna, who is the study's lead principal investigator and, uh, of course, uh, a health researcher uh, with uh, McMaster University. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us here today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Please outline, if you could, Doctor, exactly what the goals of the study are. Uh, absolutely. So let me give a bit of a context and within sure. which I can uh, start to outline what we are planning to do. The Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging, which is a Canada-wide study, uh, which was established in 2010-2011, and we have been following around 50,000 Canadians since then, and the idea is to keep following them until 2033. So this was a platform of research created to understand why some people age in healthy fashion and others don't. And as we all experienced in the middle of March, uh, we uh, started to experience pandemic. And like anything else, everyone had to pivot, and so, that the, so did the CLSA. So we actually launched a uh, COVID-19 survey in middle of April, and we have been asking 30,000 uh, Canadians of between the ages of 45 and 85 about their experience uh, with living through this pandemic, their symptoms, how many have gotten infected, how they have been dealing with public health uh, uh, policies that have come down, their mental health issues, social health issues, and so on and so forth. And as part of that program of research, uh, we have been working with Public Health Agency of Canada and the Canadian COVID Immunity Task Force to see, can CLSA be used to assess what is the burden of infection in the population in this age group. So that's what led us to uh, work with them to develop a uh, research project where we are going to go uh, collect blood samples from roughly 20,000 Canadians between the ages of 45 and 85 and look at the antibodies uh, that usually happen after people are infected, whether they have symptoms or not. So this is really uh, giving, uh, we are trying to get a picture of the, of the prevalence or the burden of infection uh, in the population, regardless of whether they developed any symptoms or not. And that's what this initiative is all about. This is a random sample of the Canadian population, so it sort of gives a truly a widespread picture of 
what's happening in Canada in relation to uh, coronavirus infection in this age group. That's what we are going to be doing over the next few months. Very important work. You know, as as we started to learn more about this a few months ago, uh, and we were told the people that had pre-existing conditions are at a higher risk, and that's understandable, I think, even for lay people. That, okay, there's something else going on in your body, uh, and this, you know, can only exacerbate that. But have we made the determination why so many seniors were involved? I, I know long-term care facilities and being clustered in the same area could have been a factor, but uh, it just seemed, especially in that first wave, that, that people, as you say, over the age of 55 or so, uh, seemed to be more prone. Yeah, and, and that is a, as uh, your previous uh, uh, whole, uh, the, the Dr. Bogash you had, that the certain mm-hmm. populations are more prone to getting negatively impacted by even seasonal flu, and seniors are in that, uh, are affected by that too. Similarly, coronavirus has the same effect because with the age, they are compromised in immunity, they have a lot of underlying chronic conditions and other vulnerabilities that actually puts people at risk. Uh, and uh, and in this case, it's no different. And on top of it, as we have seen in long-term care sector, that, that the, the burden of illness has been disproportionately high. And there are multitudes of reasons, not only because the older people themselves were at risk because the uh, complex health needs these individuals might have, but other uh, factors played into, uh, played into contributing to this uh, uh, devastating impact on senior population. And and the question is not all older people are equal. Some of them are very healthy, and that's what CLSA allows us to actually look at. For example, we have collected data on these people's health and social and economic conditions for the last 10 years. So that is actually going to allow us to see why some people got negatively impacted by this uh, particular infection and went on to develop severe symptoms if we have enough people who turn out to be positive and were really sick in the general community, we should be able to answer those questions. Is that What is that about certain segments of the population that put them at risk? Is it because they have multitudes of chronic condition? Is it because they live in um, multi-generational homes, so it's crowding? Or is it other social factors that might have put them at risk? We, we hear that Low socioeconomic groups have been disproportionately affected by that. Is that compounding the effect when it comes to uh, older people as well? Has there been a determination yet, Doctor, about the impact of uh, well, gender and ethnicity in this as well? You mentioned some of the some of the focus groups that have indicated that some people seem to be more prone. At least they seem to be a higher incidence. Are, are those factors too? Yeah, those factors, as much as within the context of the Canadian Longitudinal Study yeah. and Aging Weekend Address, we will. Uh, because we do have most of the population in the study is of European origin, because predominantly that's what Canada is. And But we do have other uh, ethnic groups uh, as part of the study where we could do some degree of sub-analysis to be able to answer some of those questions. And the socioeconomic gradient, social gradient, loneliness, social isolation, all those things that come into play. And I'm glad you brought up the mental aspect of it, too. We focused an awful lot on the physical aspect, and understandably so, but uh, the, the pressure that, that this puts on individuals that are dealing with this uh, has to be immense as well. Uh, we look forward to the results. This is going to take a while, obviously. Do you have a time frame as to when at least you'll have an initial report? Uh, the, the, the results of the uh, antibody uh, testing, we are hoping to have it in the next uh, within the next six months. Uh, we are 
getting ready to launch it as soon as possible. Partly it will depend on uh, what happens with pandemics. Uh, Are we allowed to bring people and collect blood samples, or some of those factors are going to delay it. So it's a very uncertain time from every aspect, but we are trying to organize ourselves and go ahead and collect these samples and start doing some analysis to help inform uh, our public public health policies in this country. Uh, very important work, Doctor. We wish you and your uh, team the very best of luck on this, and we certainly like to uh, stay in touch as uh, this develops. Thank you for the time today. Yeah, great. Thank you very much for having me. Take care. Dr. Perinda Reyna, of course, uh, involved in this very important study uh, to talk about uh, seniors and the impact that uh, COVID is having on them. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, with the uh, official uh, confirmation earlier this week from both the Prime Minister and the Ontario Premier, Doug Ford, that we're now officially into the second wave of COVID, I'm sure that there are a number of business people that are thinking, oh my God, here we go again, uh, because of the the terrible situation that they all went through earlier this year uh, with the shutdown and, of course, uh, the resulting uh, loss of business. Some, some businesses have still not reopened simply because of the uh, the impact that it's had. So what's going to happen? And uh, the bigger question, I guess, is how are governments going to respond? I mean, clearly, you know, small businesses especially can't get through this by themselves. And I think governments realize that. Uh, and, and they, in, in the first wave, of course, did come up with some rather innovative programs. As, you know, we can debate how effective they were, but they tried to do as much as they could uh, at, in the initial stages, and some of those programs were modified. Uh, but what's going to happen this time around? Because a number of the programs that they talked about then, of course, have, uh, have expired. Yesterday on the program, we talked with Jasmine Gwenet, who is the Vice President of National Affairs for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and uh, he gave us his take on what he thinks should happen. What needs to happen is to introduce a sliding scale approach, mm-hmm. which would mean that the greater the revenue loss, the bigger the amount of the rent subsidy is, and the lower the revenue loss, the lower the rent subsidy would be. And so these programs need to be tweaked, uh, especially the rent relief uh, needs to go through fall and the support needs to go directly to the tenant. The way that program was designed made it very complicated for a small business to actually have access to support that was promised to them. Uh, that's, uh, of course, Jasmine Gwinnett from the uh, Canadian Federation of Independent Business uh, with uh, his take on, on what government should do. And that's only one aspect of it. I mean, let, let's face it, it's going to have to be a multifaceted approach uh, to try to get small business through this. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Peggy Sadler. Uh, Peggy, of course, is the NDP MPP for London West and uh, also the critic for democratic reform, pay equity, and employment standards. Also, of course, she is the deputy opposition leader in the Ontario legislature. Peggy, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Yeah, glad to be here, Bill. Thank you. Oh, I'm glad you, you listen. We need voices to talk about this. I, you know, I, I know that governments tried to be reactive uh, back in the springtime with some programs, some effective, some not so much effective. Uh, and as our guest from yesterday said, uh, Mr. Gwinnett, uh, you know, we know now we've got a track record to say, okay, this didn't work very well, and here's why. Are we going to tweak this? Do you get any sense at all that the government's going to, to jump onto these things and try to get these things in place before things get out of hand? Uh, unfortunately, no. We just uh, passed a bill yesterday in the Ontario legislature that offered a one-month extension on uh, the prohibition on commercial evictions. 
And so that's great that businesses don't have to worry until October 30th whether they're going to be evicted from their place of business for non-payment of rent. Well, that's but interesting, we Peggy, because I missed the story where COVID's going to be over by the end of this month. I guess that's what they're exactly, thinking, is it? Exactly, exactly. Um, but the one thing that was heard loud and clear over the 800 hours of committee hearings that were held during the summer, the 500 uh, presenters who who spoke to MPPs about about what business needs to actually weather this pandemic and come through the other side is a commercial rent subsidy. It's help with insurance costs. It's support for women business owners in terms of access to childcare. Uh, you know, uh, security about the the school system, lower class sizes to reduce the risk of uh, of uh, of COVID infection for their kids. Uh, these are the kinds of uh, supports that businesses need, and we're not hearing any of that from this government. And, you know, you you spoke right away about the effectiveness of these programs, and, and we know that the commercial rent relief program that was put in place by the federal and provincial governments has been a complete failure. There is very, very low uptake of landlords to participate in this program, because it all relies on a landlord's willingness to take a 25% reduction in rent. And so we're hearing from lots of struggling businesses that they have, uh, you know, tried to get their landlord to participate. The landlord's not willing to do that. Or there are struggling businesses that don't quite reach the, uh, the eligibility criteria in terms of loss of revenue. And so they are there, even if the landlord is willing to, to participate, uh, these, there's, they don't meet the eligibility criteria. And so we need to have a, a, a made in Ontario commercial rent subsidy program that provides direct support uh, to businesses. Peggy, what were they thinking uh, when they decided on the, the criteria for qualification for this? This is one of the things that just I find mind-boggling. Because, uh, as you mentioned, the threshold right now, if for some businesses anyway, is you have to show a 70% loss before you even qualify for this. Well, you're ready to lock the door for good by the time you're there. I mean, that's too late. You know, th there's got to be some flexibility there. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that is exactly the reason that so much of the federal dollars that were allocated to that program are sitting there unspent. Like only a third of the available, or less than a third, in fact, of the available funds has been, has been flowed through the program because so many businesses don't meet the eligibility and so many landlords are, are not willing to enroll. And so we are arguing that that money should be, should be be, uh, flow directly to Ontario so that Ontario can provide the support that uh, businesses need. And, you know, the wage subsidy program is also ending uh, shortly. And so uh, businesses are businesses that have, have done everything they could to keep workers on the payroll are now really worried about uh, losing their employees and, uh, and not being able to pay the rent and, and looking at, uh, you know, in some some cases 
doubling of insurance costs or being now told by their insurance company that they're no longer insurable. And so these are all big, uh, you know, big concerns for businesses as they look at the second wave and they, and they hear about the possibility of new restrictions being imposed. We need to provide the direct support that businesses are asking for because it helps, uh, you know, workers, it helps our communities, and it ensures that we will have a local economy in place once we get through uh, COVID-19. Peggy, I want to, I'm going to back up for just a second here. I, I saw a point that you brought up just a couple of seconds ago, uh, because we've, as I say, we do analysis on, on what happened with the first wave and the impact that some of those programs did or didn't have. Uh, and one of them, let's talk about women in the workplace, which uh, I think we've realized now is a real problem. Uh, there are women who lost their jobs or were laid off from their jobs in that, in that shutdown. They still aren't back to work. And part of the reason for that, of course, is, well, there could be some concerns about going back to school, but it's also, you're right, it's daycare. Uh, and I know that the federal government in their throne speech talked about uh, allocating money for this, but is there any talk at all about creating more spaces? I mean, it, it, you know, we don't want tax credits at this stage. We need more availability for daycare, more accessibility for it. And, uh, and I'm not hearing that, that verse of that song. Uh, exactly. I'm not hearing it either. Uh, but lots of, lots of commentators, uh, economists have talked about the fact that women were the first and hardest hit by this pandemic. When you look at the sectors that have really, have really been decimated by COVID-19, it's tourism, it's hospitality, it's uh, the kinds of sectors that support a lot of lower wage jobs and often uh, women. And and also, you know, PSW, some of those uh, healthcare professions are overwhelmingly women and they have also uh, carried a disproportionate burden of, uh, of COVID-19. But, uh, uh, you know, as we look to get through this, uh, this pandemic, we have to make sure that women are able to re-enter the workforce, and that absolutely requires access to affordable, accessible childcare. We need to invest in creating more spaces in nonprofit and uh, public child care facilities and also uh, you know supporting that child care workforce we're hearing about a lot of early childhood educators uh, who 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 worry about whether they'll have a job to uh, to continue and so they're looking for other opportunities and if we lose uh, those you know, those highly professional uh, early childhood educators, we're going to be even worse off after this, after, this, uh, after this pandemic. So we have to make sure that parents feel that they can safely send their kids to school, that they won't have to go into self-isolation for 14 days because their kid has a runny nose because they've been in a class of 30 or more kids, uh, and also that they have access to those child care spaces that, that are so important to make sure that that parents in general can get back into the workforce well and everybody is, is i think on, on in sync with this i mean you know last week we talked with the ontario chamber of commerce uh and they put their report out now, this is why they dubbed it the c session because of, of the impact it had on on women in the workforce and the negative impact that it had on women in the workforce and they're recommending a number of the things that you've just talked about here uh and that's the chamber of commerce and i know business groups have talked about this and 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 other groups that are in this everybody seems to be singing the same song here i, I but you know, the government's got to react to this and we don't want them to be reactive to the to the negativity of COVID-19. We want to know right now, what have you got in plan? What's your plan? 
Exactly, and we have seen very little in the way of a plan. And as I mentioned, the the Conservatives had an opportunity with this legislation that uh, was just debated and passed in the legislature uh, that, you know, it was actually called the uh, uh, Helping uh, Tenants and Small Businesses Act. And yet the only help for small business that's included in that bill is this, uh, you know, extension on the prohibition on commercial rent or commercial eviction for an additional month. And so, as you point out, we are just at the cusp of that second wave. We don't know where that second wave is going to is going to go. You know, they're talking about uh, a thousand cases in just two weeks. And where's it going to go after that? Uh, businesses need a lot more security and stability and 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 partnership from this government uh, to help them weather this storm. Well, and I know I watched the premier's briefing the other day. Uh, you know, his one o'clock briefing, and, and he said, "Well, you know, we're just we're rolling this out one or two issues at a time because we don't want people to you know miss some of the stuff." And I, okay, I'm not quite sure I, I agree with that rationale, but I, are they addressing the priorities that need to be addressed right now? I mean, I get the medical aspect of this; that's absolutely necessary uh, to make sure we're going on, and there's going to be more testing, and that's great news for for everybody who's concerned about that. But I'm waiting to hear what they're going to do in this particular area here for the, for the buy, small businesses in particular, uh, because let's face it, you need even in times of a, a pandemic, peg, you need people to walk through the door, uh, or you're not going to be open for very much longer. And if there's no consumer confidence because people are unsure what's going on, that's that's going to hurt. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, businesses have, have, have invested, uh, you know, large sums of money, uh, to make their businesses as safe as possible. Businesses are doing everything they can to, uh, to ensure that they will be able to, to keep the doors open and keep customers coming in. Uh, but the government has shown no willingness to step up and, uh, and provide the support that's needed. And, and the government knows exactly what is needed. As I said there, they held 800 hours of committee hearings in the summer uh, inviting businesses to come forward and talk about their challenges and what they what they would need to, uh, to support uh, the recovery of, of Ontario's economy. And yet the government has refused to listen to, uh, to that input. They're not listening to the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. They're not listening to the, uh, uh, the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. Uh, the, you know, we have a real struggle ahead if we, if we are not able to maintain our small and medium-sized businesses who, who create the majority of the jobs in communities across this province. If those doors close, they close close for good, and it will take decades to rebuild uh, local economies. Well, and we've already started to see the impact of it. As soon as the word gets out, you know, that we're into the second wave and we start to see the spike, uh, people got a little skittish, and I can understand why, because we saw what happened the first time around. And, and some of the businesses I know that uh, have already responded to this. I know some of the restaurants and bars up around uh, Richmond Street uh, have already ex- explained, hell, are we going to get help or not? Or are they going to have to start laying staff off? And, and I don't think we want to go through that cycle again, do we? No, absolutely not. And it there, there's so much logic uh, when you allow a business to keep its already trained employees 
on the payroll uh, so that they can be there when we, you know, when we're able to return and, and, uh, and, and try, to, try to get back some business as usual. Uh, instead of having to lay off those people, and there's not a lot of job opportunities out there right now, you know, given no, the state no of the economy. And so then you're forcing uh, those people to go on uh, potentially on social assistance or, or lose their house or, you know, have to go into retirement savings. And that doesn't help anybody in the long run. Uh, We would be so much better off if we provide the direct uh, commercial rent support that businesses need. We we work with the insurance industry to control those skyrocketing insurance costs. Those are two of the the largest fixed overheads that businesses are are facing. Uh, And then enable businesses to keep their workers on the payroll until we get through the other side of this. If you can get the insurance industries on side like this, you get. I'm sorry, because just about every government for the last 40 years just rolls over every time the insurance industry says, "Well, we can't afford to do that." You know, we're we're losing money as it is. Uh, they've got to understand the gravity of the situation here, and they've got to come to the table willing to to bend more than just a little bit in situations like this. You know, they it's 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 always no matter what government's in place there, they always say, "Yeah, we're going to take these guys on," and they cave. They roll all the time to this, and. Uh, I don't want to see it happen this time because, as you say, this is the this could be those insurance costs alone could be the the difference between a business staying open and shutting the doors. Yeah, absolutely. And and the Ontario government regulates the insurance industry, and we saw we saw. Doug well, they're supposed Ford- to. Yeah, well, but we saw Doug Ford, you know, uh, express outrage over uh, over uh, Lysol wipes that were overpriced, you know, in a uh, in a in a, a grocery store. Uh, why is he not expressing the same outrage and taking strong action to control insurance gouging? Because that is what we're hearing from a lot of small and medium-sized businesses that they are being given these arbitrary notices of of huge increases in their insurance costs or they're being told that they're no longer insurable and uh you know that 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 is a complete disaster for uh for a business to to be able to continue well with the new information we have about what's happening with covid and and with the the track record that we've got over the last nine months of some of the programs that were put in place uh, it's going to be a lively session in the legislature over the next couple of weeks isn't it well, you know, we are continuing to raise these issues in uh, every opportunity we have. Uh, I'm just worried that we won't have, you know, we won't see government legislation coming forward. It appeared yesterday when their bill was passed to put this moratorium on commercial evictions uh, extended to October 30th. It appeared that that is what they are, you know, that's what they're providing. That's the kind of lifeline they're providing to the uh, to the small and medium-sized business community in this province. And so, you know, we're going to be pushing as hard as we can uh, to get them to step up and actually take meaningful actions that will save Main Street and that respond to the, to the, the, the issues that small and medium-sized businesses are, are facing in this province. Well, I mean, the, comp- the the problems are complex, and the solutions have got to be just as complex, too, to try to address them. And y- you mentioned the insurance thing, which I, they seem to be an oversight with some of the stuff that they tried back in the first phase. So here's hoping that they are not just uh, hearing but listening at the same time. Peggy, thank you so much for the time. Uh, continued good luck and stay well. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thanks so much, Bill.
Take care. Peggy Sadler, of course, uh, NDP MPP for uh, London West and Deputy Opposition House Leader in the Ontario Legislature. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.